Well, today is a special weekend because we have a guest speaker with us. His name is Heath Adamson. He is a friend of Westover. He is an author. He is a speaker. He's also the senior vice president of global program at Convoy of Hope. They've been a partner with us for nearly 20 years. And I want you to help me give a warm Westover welcome to our friend, Heath Adamson. Hey, good morning, guys. It's always fun and an honor to be here. Uh, this is one of my favorite places, uh, honestly, just to worship Jesus. And it's because of your generosity. You've just been faithful year after year. Um, but you also live out and demonstrate the gospel in a really practical, tangible way in your community. I just love what you guys are doing. I love the heart of this house. And um, I also love your pastors, Pastor Jonathan, Pastor Danae. They're not only just leaders, they're friends, personal friends of ours. And I absolutely love coming here because I get to hang out with them. And so I've had a great couple days just because I've been able to be with friends. So um, before we jump in, in a moment, we will be in Acts chapter 19. I just want to publicly say, Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your kindness. Uh, mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. And kindness, the kindness of God is how he administrates his mercy and his grace. I met the Lord when I was 17. He took my, my breath away, and he's more real now than he's ever been. And so it's just an honor to be here and talk to you about the one who makes life worth living. So this morning when you woke up in about 40 nations around the world, 533,580 kids were fed and discipled. And Westover, you're a big part of that. And we are well underway to the miracle goal of feeding and discipling in our program every single day, one million children. We aim to achieve that goal by year 2030. We believe with God's help we will get there before 2030. Because hope, it only works if it gets there in time. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to just jump in and um, I'm going to be bold today. I stand here not as a guest speaker. I stand here as someone who has an opportunity to advocate on behalf of kids who go to bed hungry, who suffer under the unbearable burden of poverty and malnutrition, and um, hope only works if it gets there in time. And Madagascar is a great example of that. Madagascar, it's an island nation on the southeast um, corner of the beautiful and great continent of Africa. 80% of, Mad of Madagascar's popu population, 80% of the Malagasy people um, live in extreme poverty. It's one of the most desperate places on the earth. And 50%... 47 to 50% of the children between the ages of zero to five struggle with acute malnutrition. And when I was there uh, just a few months ago, hopped on a plane, left Antanarivo, the capital city of Madagascar, and we flew south to a region in southern Madagascar called Ajeda. And it's where the Mahafa people live. We're really not sure how many people live in the region of Ajeda because it's so remote and isolated. It's very difficult uh, not only to get there, but really to even be able to take a census. The average family we do know in the Ajeda region has between 14 and 15 children. 
And the primary reason is because of the high child mortality rate. If you want your family lineage to continue and be perpetuated into the future, you need to have that many kids just to make sure that the next generation in your family emerges. It's a desperate place, and it's a place that I'll never forget. It hasn't rained for four years. And drought and famine is the everyday reality of the children in Ajeda. I want to show you a, a photo, and it's a bit graphic, but I feel like we just need to tell the story. This is what children in Ajeda look like, those who struggle from acute malnutrition. They're extended, their complexion is emaciated, and they're hanging on simply to survive. When we landed, we had to charter a Cessna plane, and when we landed, hundreds of people came from nowhere. What we found out is when we sent a word ahead to Ajeda that we were going to come, the men in some of the villages actually prepared a runway in a field. Um, it took us three passes, and finally we landed. It was a bit sketchy, if I could just be honest with you. But the men repaired a runway, and... Hundreds of people gathered. They wanted to find out why the big white bird from the sky landed. We were surrounded by people, and many of those who surrounded the plane were children. And a mother greeted us as we stepped out of the plane, and she was holding in her arms her baby. Her baby's name is Malatania. And he's a three-year-old, beautiful little boy, but he is, acute, is acutely malnourished and Honestly, his thigh was the thickness of my pinky finger, and that is no exaggeration. Ironically, his name, Malatania, in Malagasy means hope. We hopped in a car with our military escort, not because we asked for it, but because you need it. There are some parts of the world where people are so desperate, uh, and when people are desperate and struggle under the unbearable burden of hopelessness, they do unspeakable things. And when you're simply trying to survive, you do whatever it takes. And so we had our military escort. We traveled to a village called Seva Seva de Fui. We found out, we heard in our research and with some relationships we have on the ground in the region, uh, because we're getting ready to launch long-term operations there, we, we heard about Seva Seva de Fui. And when we arrived in this village, 254 children, yes, I counted them, 254 children surrounded us. And the first thing that really caught my attention is what I heard. What I heard was laughter. How many of you know that no matter where you're at in the world, kids are kids, right? So whether or not you're in San Antonio or you're in Nicaragua or Bangladesh or southern Madagascar in Seva Seva de Fui, kids love to dance, they love to laugh, and they love to have fun. And when a stranger comes to town and that stranger looks a little bit different because people with comb-overs don't live in Seva Seva de Fui, um, little kids get a kick out of it. And so they surrounded us, and we just had the time of our lives. When you don't know what to do, and you're around a child who is malnourished, who is struggling, it's the best solution is always just to hug them. Because how many of you know that there are some things like hugs and laughter and love that don't need translation? If you don't speak somebody's language, everybody speaks the language of love. So I'm just hugging kids. They're laughing. We're having fun. But the second thing I noticed, and this photograph will show you, was the color of their hair. And if you could leave it up for just a moment. Now, to be 
clear, on that day we were there, it was really hot. I think it was about 105, 110 degrees, if memory serves me right. It was really hot. It was really sunny. And if you look at the crowns of their heads, the top of their heads, you'll think, okay, the sunlight is just reflecting off of them. And that's true if you look at their foreheads. But if you zero in and you look at their hair, you find out that the children have orange hair. And because of their genetic makeup, when you struggle from acute malnutrition, their hair turns orange. And it isn't because of a parasitic infection. It's not because um, of the climate they live in. It's because of a protein deficiency. And the protein deficiency is directly related to a lack of food. So for about two or three months out of the year, the people, the villagers in Ajeda will live off of pumpkin or cassava. And then after that, we find that we found out they live off of cactus. Now the children in Seva Seva Defui were eating dirt. They're eating dirt to put something in their stomach to squelch their hunger pains. It's completely unacceptable. I tell you that not for effect, but I tell you that because literally tens of millions of kids on the continent of Africa alone eat dirt so that when they go to, go to bed, they can actually sleep. I've heard the cries of children in the remote African villages, and I frequent the villages regularly because of what I do. It's, it's haunting at night when you hear. The desert becomes an amphitheater for sound, and it echoes. You can hear the cries of infants that have nothing in their stomachs. It is one of the most horrific things I've ever heard, and I can't, I can't unhear it. And to be really honest with you, it serves as a primary motivating factor for me. I hope I never forget what it sounds like. Well, in Seva Seva Defui, we got there in time. And we're setting up long-term operations there, and we're going to end the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty in this amazing village. And it starts with the 254 children and their families in Seva Seva Defui. But there are tens of millions who are waiting, and hope only works if it gets there in time. I want to remind you that poverty is an illegitimate reality. It was never part of God's original design. And poverty... Malnutrition, vulnerability, marginalization, inequity, people who struggle under the unbearable burden. It is bondage that the evil one uses to keep people from living the life that the Father intended them to live. And a convoy of hope, regardless of someone's age, gender, ethnicity, creed, political view, or religious belief, we serve those in need. And we respond swiftly because God cares about people. But at the center of what we do is the ethic of Jesus. What what I love about Jesus is he restores dignity to people who are struggling. Do you remember the story in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus heals a leper? Have you ever been in contact with a leper? I remember the first leper colony I ever walked through. You come in contact with someone who's who suffers with leprosy, they're often missing uh, the tips of certain body parts. Often the front of their nose or the tips of their ears or their fingertips are gone. They're covered with whitish gray sores. Their bodies emit a decrepit odor. And when you suffer from leprosy, you are embarrassed. You've lived as a recluse. 
for uh, your life, and you do not make eye contact with somebody. And the last thing that usually occurs to you if you are a leper is for somebody to reach out and touch you. I don't know if leprosy is highly contagious. All I know is when I was walking through the leper colony for the first time, I was so traumatized and caught off guard, I began to dry heave. And, um, and then I remembered the story when Jesus healed the leper. He didn't just heal the leper. He reaches out and he touches the leper. And so I got my act together and I did what you would do. And I just started hugging people. When Jesus heals the leper, he restores his dignity. And that is the ethic of Jesus. He, he dignifies people who are made in his image. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 8, that God um, restores people to a place of honor. And he does that with a simple touch. You heard Pastor Jonathan last weekend preach out of Matthew 24 about the signs of the times. What a great message, by the way. The Bible says that the love of most will grow cold. That means that the day and the hour we live in, love is a new idea. It means love is a sign and a wonder. Don't you just love how... Simple, Jesus made it, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's something we can all do, regardless of our educational background or our socioeconomic status. There's a lot of things I'm horrible at, but one thing I can do is one thing you can do. Let's just love other people in the way they deserve to be loved. And at Convoy of Hope, we live with this constant tension, a deep sense of gratitude. Sincerely, I'm grateful for people like you, I'm grateful that you understand the kindness of God, the love of God, that there's power in generosity, and that literally taking one day to feed a hungry child is one of the most beautiful things you can do. Whether you make multi-millions of dollars every year or you're a college student and you're living off ramen noodles, we can all do something. And I'm grateful for church, uh, churches like Westover Hills. I'm grateful for you. But on the other side of that coin, we also live with this greater sense of urgency. Right now, Africa is in the midst of the greatest hunger crisis it has faced in 50 years. You don't hear about it much on the news because right now the news is dominated with other stories, there's significant conflict in the world, but we're in the midst of the greatest humanitarian crisis the world has seen since World War II. And hope only works if it gets there in time. Here's what I know. You do Galatians chapter 2, verse 10 very well, and it says this. It says in Galatians 2, remember the poor. As you get up and you go to work tomorrow, as you come to church next weekend, thank you that you're going to remember the poor. And this church regularly links arms with Convoy of Hope. I love coming here. I love coming back here year after year because I can count on your generosity and your kindness. But I'm asking you, I don't want to assume, I'm asking you, link arms with us again and let's feed 2,000 kids together by the end of next year. The Bible says this. 
In Acts chapter 19, verse 8 through 12, it says, And he went into the synagogue. Who is he? It's the Apostle Paul. And he spoke boldly, both persuading and reasoning, concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some who were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, the way was a descriptor for those who followed Jesus in the first century for a brief period of time. They spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all those who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. For just a few moments, I want to talk to you about unusual miracles. I'm praying that God would work not only a miracle next weekend when you receive an offering to partner with us to feed kids, but that God would work an unusual miracle. But here's what I'm learning at the age of 46 now. Unusual miracles occur through ordinary people. So in order to understand what the Bible means, we have to understand what it meant. So what's the context? What does Acts chapter 19 mean? Well, back in the day in the first century when this uh, moment takes place, there are approximately 250,000 people who lived in ancient Ephesus. So just juxtapose that with the size of San Antonio, okay? You've got about 250,000 people. Ephesus was the most prosperous city in the, most, in the leading region of the ancient Roman Empire, and there were a few reasons for that. Ancient Ephesus had a significant road system. How many of you know if you don't have good roads, good luck trading? Well, ancient Ephesus had a fairly prolific road system. They also had a harbor, which meant that people came from all over to trade. They traded in textiles. They traded in spices. Unfortunately, they also traded in human beings. It's where the slave trade was rampant in the first century on the Mediterranean coast. But Ephesus also was known to be not only a secular society, but a very spiritual culture. There were about 50 gods or goddesses who were worshipped there. Right in the heart of the city, you had this huge temple called the Temple of Artemis, which is where we get our word art. But it also, the Romans called the goddess Diana. So they worshipped Diana or Artemis in this temple. And this temple, because people came from all over the world to go on spiritual pilgrimage to Ephesus, the temple um, became um, a huge bank that funded enterprise, the meso and macro economy of ancient Ephesus. It also funded part of the Olympic-style games that were held in that region. So Ephesus is a place where if you walk down the streets at on any given day, you would often come in contact with maybe someone who practiced black or white magic or a witch or a warlock or a seeker of some type because people came from all over to worship their god or their goddess. The apostle Paul finds himself in the ancient city of Ephesus, which again is the city that the book of Ephesians is somewhat addressed to. And he finds himself in the school or the hall of Tyrannus. Now this is a place, it was a room where it was modeled after the Socratic method that ancient Greeks, what people did for entertainment is they would often go into a room and listen to someone give a speech, 
on various ideologies or various cultural identities. It'd be like going to a movie. It would be like going to a game, watching the Astros play or whoever you watch. What the ancient Greeks did, they wandered into the hall of Tyrannus and they listened to Greek orators. So here's Paul. Paul, we know, was a tent maker. So Paul, a Jewish man, what would have happened when he was a pre-adolescent, he would have become an apprentice to someone who made tents. It's a manual labor job. After he graduated from his apprenticeship, he would have received some tools, some knives, a scratch-all, and often a a leather apron that was about three-quarters of an inch thick. Paul who studied under Gamaliel, it would have been similar to an Ivy League education in the first century if you wanted to be a rabbinical scholar. He meets Jesus, the story is recorded in Acts chapter 9, and he devotes the rest of his life to proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel. It's one thing to proclaim, it's another thing to demonstrate. How many of you know that the world will believe the gospel if we don't just preach it, but we live it? The gospel is not just a sermon topic, it's a lifestyle, right? So Paul is living out the gospel in practical ways, and he finds himself in ancient Ephesus. Now, I'm a geek. I do some research. I like archaeology, and here's what I found out. Um, In the first century in ancient Ephesus, if you find employment contracts and other documentation, the ancient workday in the city of Ephesus started at 7 o'clock in the morning. Some of you can relate. And they would work until 11 a.m. And then at 11 a.m., that's where lunch break kicked in. But I have a feeling their lunch break was a little bit longer than yours. You may get 45 minutes, maybe an hour and 15 if you're lucky. But the ancient Ephesians took lunch break at 11 in the morning, and it went until 4 p.m. Wouldn't that just be beautiful? They get lunch break, and what would they do? They would take a nap, go home and work in their gardens. But often what they would do after they ate, they would wander into the hall of Tyrannus and listen to someone give an oration or a speech. Then they would go back to work 4 p.m. and work until about 9.30 p.m. So here's the Apostle Paul. He has this moment with Jesus of Nazareth that changes the trajectory of his life. And Paul finds himself in the ancient synagogue, and it's not going well. So what do you do when you're Paul? When God has put something in your heart and the circumstance doesn't just seem to work out. Well, Paul looks at what he has in his hands, and he chooses to serve God with it. Something we can all do. You look at what God has placed in your hands, and you just serve God with it. So Paul goes back to his manual labor job. Seven in the morning until 11, he's making tents. Then he takes a break, and with his own money, He rents out the hall of Tyrannus, and for five hours a day, Paul gives speeches and lectures. And then he goes back to work in the marketplace, and he continues to make tents. So I got out my calculator, did some calculations. The Bible says he did this for two years, 52 weeks a year, two years, six workdays a week, five hours a day. Here's what I came up with. 3,120 hours of teaching. That's what Paul had. There is only one person on the planet 
you put a microphone in his or her hand who has 3,120 hours worth of sermon material. He's your pastor, Pastor Jonathan, okay? He's got that much content in his brain and in his heart. He's the only person on the planet that could probably do that. The Apostle Paul did that. 3,120 hours. Could you imagine wandering into the hall of Tyrannus and listening to Paul proclaim the great truths we find in the book of Romans? Could you imagine what it would be like to listen to Paul just stained and sweaty from making tents, taking a break in the middle of the day, giving us the great truths we read about in the book of Galatians? Hearing Paul say, whatever you do, remember the poor. That's what the Apostle Paul's doing. But what I want to draw your attention to is the Bible says God worked unusual miracles through Paul. Where did those unusual miracles come from? The unusual miracles came from a fairly ordinary source. The Bible says that God took the handkerchief and the apron and used those two things to perform unusual miracles. The handkerchief in the Greek New Testament, the word for handkerchief literally translated as sweat. The handkerchief would have been a linen um, strip of cloth that he strapped around his forehead so that in the hot sun, it would keep the sweat from dripping into his eyes. It would have been stained, torn, tattered, filthy. And the apron, again, made out of leather, about three quarters of an inch thick, he would have covered his vital organs so that as he's bending over in the hot sun, keeping the sweat from dripping in his eyes, he has his knives and he's making tents. And the apron would have protected him from bludgeoning himself from a sharp object. What I love about the unusual miracle is God does not use a priestly garment. He does not use the prayer shawl from an itinerant rabbi. He doesn't use somebody's Ph.D. degree. He doesn't use something from somebody who makes a ton of money a year. He takes something ordinary, like a filthy, sweaty bandana and a leather apron. What does the apron and the handkerchief represent? It represents just something ordinary, that an ordinary person has access to. It represents hard work. It represents toil. It represents being faithful. When you don't quite know what to do, God sent me to the city of Ephesus. It's not going well. What should I do? I'll just go make tents, and in the middle of the day, I'll be faithful and stand up and proclaim what God has placed into my heart. The handkerchief and the apron represent two spiritual truths, and I'm almost done. The first truth that represents is this, that God does not bless who you pretend to be. God does not bless who people presume you to be. God anoints and blesses who he created you to be. I would suggest to you that if Paul would not have made tents, what if Paul would have decided to become a scribe and copy down scrolls and sell them? I have a feeling God would not have blessed that. I have a feeling that God would not have used that to perform an unusual miracle. Why? Because Paul would have been operating outside of who God designed him to be. Paul was who God designed him to be. He's a tent maker. He makes Tense. And so he took what he had in his hands and he just gave it to God and God performed an, an unusual miracle. I want to remind you that to the business owner, to the educator, to the parent, the attorney, the medical professional, the construction worker, the truck driver, the student, even the child. 
What you have in your hand is enough. Take your apron and your handkerchief and watch God perform an unusual miracle through you. Because unusual miracles often occur through ordinary people. And the handkerchief and the apron also represent this truth, that God honors both faith and faithfulness. We know what the Bible says in Mark 11, verse 23 through 25. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed, it will be uprooted and cast into the midst of the sea. What I love about that is God doesn't just draw attention to the size of our faith. It just needs to be the size of a mustard seed. It's not about the size of our faith. It's about the effectiveness of it. It's about our willingness to use it. What I know about you is you use your faith. Each and every year when you give and you partner with us to feed hungry kids, you're trusting, God, I trust that this this offering is going to be used by you to produce a lasting result in eternity and glorify your name. You use your faith each and every year when you partner with us, but it's not just about faith. It's about faithfulness. Here's Paul, two years under the hot Ephesian sun, laboring and toiling, sweating. Could you imagine people walking past Paul? Isn't that Paul of Tarsus? Isn't he the guy who supposedly had this encounter with God? Now look at him. He can't even get a real job. He's making tents. Day after day, month after month, I'm just going to be faithful. God, you brought me here. I'm just going to be faithful. I'm going to make tents hot, sweaty, in the middle of the day, standing up, probably not even having time to shower and change his clothes. I'm going to stand up, and I'm going to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. He is being faithful. Who knows, in March, when you got up on Tuesday morning and you went to work on time, who knows if that morning when you had a horrible night before, you didn't get any sleep because of what was going on in your family, and on Tuesday, you still got up and you were faithful. Who knows if that moment of you being faithful is what God's going to use next weekend when you partner with Him to transform the life of a child, both in this life and the one to come. God blesses faith, but He also blesses faithfulness. Westover Hills, you're faithful each and every year to partner with us, and for that, I say thank you. Here's our commitment to you. At Convoy of Hope, we will do what we say we're going to do. Next weekend, when you give generously and radically, we will do what we say we're going to do. Our commitment to you is we will work with excellence, and we will produce sustainable transformation, both for this life and in the one to come. We will feed hungry children in his name. We don't just give a cup of cold water. We do it in his name. Why? Because there's no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. And our commitment to you is that together we will take what seems ordinary and partner with God and watch him do an unusual miracle. But what if God doesn't just want to perform an unusual miracle through you? What if he wants to do it to you? So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because I want to ask two questions as our service gets ready to come to a close. And the first question is this. I want to ask you, do you have a relationship with God? I'm not asking if you attend Westover Hills Church. This is a phenomenal church. We would attend this church if we lived in San Antonio. But I'm not asking you if you attend this church. I'm not asking if 
if you've gone through catechism classes. I'm not asking if you've been baptized in water. I'm not asking if you go to confession regularly. I'm asking, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Jesus didn't die on the cross just to be your friend. He died on the cross because the Bible says all of us have sinned. That means we have made decisions that violate God's heart and God's character. We have all sinned. And because of that, we are separated from God. There is a bridge that has been destroyed and burned because of sin that none of us can rebuild on our own. We need God to help us. And God is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He is a God of kindness. And the most kind, merciful, gracious thing God has done is when the innocent Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, died on the cross for your sin. And he didn't just lay his life down. He was raised from the dead. Jesus is not just a religious icon. He's the Son of God. I'm asking, do you have a relationship with God? Do you know Jesus? I'm asking you to keep your eye closed because this is a personal decision. But I am going to ask you to be bold. If you would say, Heath, remember me in prayer because today I would like to yield and surrender my life to Jesus. I want to make things right with God. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to be humble but bold and slip your hand up all over the room. Up, up, up. Thank you, sir. Good choice. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. If you're raising your hand, you're saying, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. There's hands up all over the place. Anyone else? You can put them down. I'm going to ask everyone to stand to your feet, please. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible tells us confession is made unto salvation. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So there is an internal believing that must take place, but there's an external transformation that has to be put on display. That's where we confess. It's not a finish line. It's the beginning. So there were dozens of you who raised your hands, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and I'm going to ask everyone in the congregation, let's just all pray together. Let's affirm our faith and our trust in Jesus and come alongside those who raised their hands earlier to surrender and yield their life to Christ. So let's out loud verbally proclaim our confession in Christ. Jesus You are my Lord. You are my Savior. And today, I fully yield to you. Change my life. Please forgive me for my sin. And from this moment on, no matter where I go, no matter what I do, Jesus, I am yours. Now I want to ask a second question. If you're in the room today and you would say, you know what, I need God to perform an unusual miracle in my life. Maybe you've prayed about something for 10 straight years. It's okay to pray one more time. Maybe you have a tumor the size of a lemon. Tumors don't exist in heaven. We can ask God to heal, and God still heals. Maybe you've got a relationship that has been destroyed because of abuse and mistrust. Maybe, just maybe, today's the day when you pray that the mercy of God will bring reconciliation. Maybe you need a job so that you don't need to work three jobs to pay your bills. Maybe today God is longing to hear your voice. Ask him to perform not just a miracle, but an unusual miracle. God performs miracles.
We're worshiping a God who's alive today. And if you need an unusual miracle in your life, in faith, I'm going to ask you to be bold and lift your hand, not to me, but to God right now. God, I'm asking you to perform an unusual miracle in my life. God, I put my hope in you. I put my trust in you. I believe your word. And I'm believing that today is going to be the day, not only of miracles, but unusual miracles. The worship team is going to lead us in worship. And here's the deal. If you want to come to the altar, we're going to create space. The prayer team will come up behind you. And let's just take a few moments and ask God to perform an unusual miracle today. If that's you and you want to come, you come. And let's come before God and partner with him to do the unusual today.